0: You're listening to Ink Studs. Uh, Today's interview is with Alec Longstreth. Alec's new book is the uh, massive hardcover, Basewood, which uh, he's been working on for, I'm going to say, what, seven, eight, nine years? Yeah, seven years of drawing,
1: plus three years of writing about, so it's ten years of my life. It's my twenties, I like to say.
0: There we go. That is, that's impressive. Um... Or and, uh, pathetic.
1: <laughs> Depending on how you look at it.
0: Um, having seen one of your original pages when I was in Vermont uh a couple of years what, seven years ago, I can see why the time um took a while.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it certainly did.
0: Um Basewood is Alex Last book, but we should also mention uh his ongoing zine series uh, zine slash mini comic is phase 7 as well. You have a pinball zine, don't you?
1: Yes, drop target zine that I do with my buddy John Chad.
0: Nice. And uh, as well as a zine yes. you did about Dvorak. Did I pronounce it right? Dvorak, yeah. Dvorak. Close, close enough. <laughs> I'm trying here. I'm trying. Um, As well, Alec uh, was a teacher for CCS, um, the cartoon school out of vermont and still teaches from uh across the continent yeah uh,
1: from california so i still they uh pipe me into a classroom uh in the fall semester and i scream at people big brother style from a screen and they do their homework
0: and then you like make them seal your window with the sun shining while they're stuck in five feet of snow
1: yeah it actually was really funny this semester um where I said okay class is dismissed and then everybody uh started bundling up and I thought, "Ooh, that's a little different." <laughs> so I'm out here and it's, it's kind of always 65, 70 degrees and out there they were putting on scarves and hats and stuff and it was snowing. So, rough winter this year, I guess out in Vermont.
0: I was there for probably 24 hours and it wasn't even that bad and it was bad enough for me just to be Yeah. yeah. I was I was whining and uh we went for breakfast with Bassette and he just laughed at me.
1: Yeah, well, he's a he's a Vermonter, you know, born and bred. He's He's been there his whole life, so. Um, he, he always tells the story, there was one year where it snowed every month of the year. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but so he's always like, this is nothing!
0: And he probably finishes it, and we liked it that way! Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, like myself, you're a Pacific Northwesterner, originally from Seattle. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, reading through your stuff, you never really got involved in the Seattle comic scene at any point, did you?
1: No, not really. Um, I sort of got super duper into comics when I was at college. So I was out at Oberlin College in Ohio. That's when I first like read Understanding Comics and was like, wow, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, There were a few summers there. Um, I was like a tech theater um, major in college, and so I used to build sets, and I worked as a carpenter for about six years. So there were a few summers when I was still in college, but I lived in Seattle during the summer, um, and I worked at the University of Washington uh, drama department scene shop in Seattle. Um, So some of my stories take place in Seattle because it's sort of from that time in my life. Um, And then there were a few times where like, I'm always kind of coming home. My parents still live in Seattle, so I'll come home every once in a while. So I've done, like, a few meetups. Uh, what's that bar where they all meet up? Cafe uh, Racer. Yes. So I've gone to a couple things with, like, Kaz Strepik, um, where we all met up there. And it was like, oh, my God, Jim Woodring's here. And, uh, you know, Max and, and Kelly and all those uh, Seattle cartoonists were all there. So I'm sort of uh, – on the periphery of it, but I wouldn't say I've ever, I, 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 w- I never really lived there and got deep on it.
0: Now, were you drawing, because um, you said you went to Oberlin for art, um, what was your medium you were working in at that time?
1: Um. Well, I was doing theater, so I was like building sets. Uh, okay. So wood and paint, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I read Understanding Comics, I guess at the end of my sophomore year, my friend Paul handed it to me and was like, you got to read this and and that sort of like blew my brain apart and then when I put it back together it was rearranged and my whole life's purpose was comics Um, so I started drawing comics for the Oberlin review and the grape which was the alternative um, Oberlin paper Um, you know and then I started like taking art classes but asking the professor if I could draw comics because there wasn't really like now Oberlin actually has a comics collective um, class and I've met some of the students that do that currently. Um, I met some of them at Cake last year. Um, But at the time, you know, like a lot of people, there wasn't really an area where you could study comics. So I sort of was like setting private studies up or Oberlin does a thing called winter term where you get the month of January off to work on anything you want. So um, I was like, I'm going to draw comics for that month. Um, and then that was really sort of how I started Phase Seven. Is I was drawing lots of comics through various different channels at school, and then when I graduated, I didn't have anywhere to publish my comics, so I started Phase Seven as a way to keep, you know, giving myself little deadlines and getting work done, and I could share it with people. And now uh, that was 2002, so what is that? 12 years later, I'm on issue, working on issue 19 right
0: now. So plugging picking along, up, picking up steam on it.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I've. After now that Basewood is done, I feel like I've simplified my style and um, I'm a much happier, more productive cartoonist.
0: So doing uh, set design, did you kinda have an expectation that you would just be going into film?
1: Um yes. I it's it's actually a crazy story. I basically got into set design because I wanted to work on Star Wars episode three, Revenge of the Sith. Um, as a set designer because Star Wars has always been really important to me so I thought like I should give back to something. Um, I'm, I'm gonna draw a comic about this it'll be a big arc of phase seven but I haven't gotten to it yet. Anyways and so after I graduated I moved to LA to get some real set experience so I used to build um, sets for like Toys R Us ads or Doritos ads um, working in the television industry and you know like building sets on Universal and uh, the Disney lot and paramount studios all these different places so i did that for about six months and then i went to australia uh... Cause it, uh episode three was filmed at fox studios australia so i just kind of showed up in sydney and knocked on the gate <laughs> and they were like who the hell are you and i was like i'd like to work on star wars please and uh... it just didn't work out i had a four month visa and you know they didn't they had a huge crew of people that had worked on episode two and stuff so it just did, it didn't happen uh... So that was sort of a bummer. And then I came back to the States and I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? Because at that point I had spent about six years working as a carpenter at Oberlin and after Oberlin. um, And then, you know, also while I was working with all these guys, they're kind of like people who are like 40, 45 and they'll drop their pencil and they're like, oh, my back. You know, hey kid, can you pick that up for me? And so I'm looking at these guys thinking, yikes, um, I'm not sure I want to be this person. Um, And I really like comics, so then I sort of had like a, um, you know, I was like, I need to start over and kind of pick a career that I want to be able to do for the rest of my life. Um, So that's when I sort of went back to school again. I went to Pratt Institute, studied illustration, and, uh, you know, I've been freelancing since I graduated in 2007. Um, And so I do sort of a combination of comics, illustration, and then teaching. Um, And that's how I earn my bread or whatever.
2: <laughs>
0: now, hey. mentioning the kind of guys throwing out their back and being old from, or not old, but, you know. Grizzled from. Grizzled from. Physical from labor. Manually. Is that why, because you draw on a like a flat wall, like that kind of angle.
1: Yeah, yeah, that actually is, because I, um, yeah, I spent those six years pretty much hunched over, you know, you're always like working on the floor or whatever, and I used to have a lot of back problems. Um, I used to have almost constant back pain, Um, So, uh, you know, most cartoonists draw with their drawing board probably at, you know, if 90 degrees is uh, vertical and zero is flat, they probably draw at 20 degrees or something, just like a slight incline. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least when I started drawing, if I drew like that, um, I would get like spasms in my back. I just couldn't handle it. It was really painful. So um, I started drawing with my board more like 80 degrees (laughs) or 85, almost vertical. it helps me sit up straight. And then I think that also was influenced by basewood because the pages are so physically large you know they're eighteen by twenty four that uh um, when you're drawing that big, you can't you know reach the top end of the page if you're drawing flat um you know that's like the size Carl Barks used to draw, but he would actually physically cut the pages in half so that he was only working at two tiers at a time.
0: Oh, I didn't know that, yeah, uh, if you ever
1: see a barks original, they're like two pieces
0: taped together or uh a Hell Foster? Or are they just one big piece? Oh, I think he did know. three pieces, didn't he? And they're just giant?
1: I'm not sure. Yeah. The only one I know is Barks. Um, but it's, it's interesting because if you read his work, like, actually, there's a Fantagraphics edition that they're putting together where they're reformatting a Barks story in, like, a horizontal format. And each page is only two tiers. And it works because he never would cross the center tier. Oh. Because um, he always razor bladed his pages into two parts so that they were easier to reach. And his drawing board was maybe twenty five degrees or something. So
0: I wonder what Frank Santoro will have to say about that. I don't know. He'll <laughs> have to
1: pick his brain next time you guys have one on the show.
0: <laughs> he can't get his angles and his golden mean or whatever. Yeah, so
1: and now it's just become habit. Like if I'm if I try to draw flat I'm like, what am I doing? you know, so now I, I just sit up straight and drawn pretty much a flat surface and you're a tall guy too right yeah so maybe that's part of it i have a long torso so
0: i don't want to be hunched up it makes it easier um now when you started getting into comics um one of the folks you kind of thank um and you've taken a lot of cues from is uh dave sim and i'm wondering um how his kind of work ethic affected your own work ethic yeah,
1: um, I think there was three books that really, or three sort of, I don't, not really books, but like articles, magazines, comics, whatever, that totally like focused my identity as a cartoonist. So one was understanding comics, which is like, wow, this is an art form. The second is the Dave Sim uh, Service Guide to Self-Publishing, um, where he really lays a lot of stuff out and kind of, you know, takes the mystery away where... He's like, here's how you draw with a Hunt 102 nib, you know, and it's going to do this on you, it's going to do this. And he sort of troubleshoots the whole thing and lays it all out and then talks about kind of self-publishing and um, why that's important. And, you know, you don't have to give 90% of your profits to someone because they're doing 10% of the work, um, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But um, And then the third one was the John Porcelino Comics Journal interview, um, which is really amazing. Those are the three that I recommend people read. But, um, yeah, Dave Sim, like, in that self-publishing guide has a thing (laughs) that's like, he's like, you know, if you want to make it, you know, and and Dave Sim's whole thing was a a comic book every month, right? So you take 20 days, you draw a comic book, and then you have 10 days to do all the printing and marketing and whatever. Um, So his whole thing is you have to be able to do a page a day, and that's writing it, penciling it, inking it, lettering it, you know, toning it, all that kind of stuff. Um, And so in that book, he says, like, you know, take seven days. And draw. If at the end of seven days you don't have seven pages, seven you know finished pages, then you need to examine your life, you know. And if you have a, <laughs> a girlfriend or you
2: know a pet <laughs> or whatever
1: that's getting in the way, then you need to make some tough decisions or whatever. Uh, and I remember reading that and being like, "Whoa, this guy is intense." And I liked the intensity. I, I'm a pretty intense guy myself, but um, you know, I, I I can see the the side of things where a girlfriend or a pet might enhance your life and make you a happier, more productive person. Um, so I sort of watered it down. His thing was draw a page a day. Um, and my motto since 2000 has been draw comics every day. Um, mm. So that's a continuum. You know, that can be put two panels on a page in your sketchbook if you had a, a rough day where you had a lot going on. And then, you know, hopefully a normal day is somewhere between two to four hours of drawing comics. Um, and then you know, up and up and up all the way up to a 24-hour comic where you draw 24 pages in 24 hours. Um, So I've done that pretty consistently. I think I've missed maybe like six days since 2000, but I like draw myself a little calendar every month and I just make sure that I draw comics because it's easier to keep going if you just keep doing it. Um, And then, yeah, I don't know. It's like, to me, it's actually a little sad. Um, You know, Dave Sims, someone that is a, a real inspiration for me. Obviously, you have to kind of take him with a grain of salt because his views are pretty extreme. But um, mm. yeah, you know, he finished his 300 issues, which is like one of the most amazing things that's ever been done in comics. Um, you know, with a lot of help from Gerhard. But um, you know, by the end of it, he was divorced and had alienated all his friends and has kind of gone a little crazy. So um, I don't know. I I still cite him as an influence and I'm not ashamed of that but um you know like if if you're corresponding with Dave he's a, an amazing correspondent where he'll write back and forth and at some point he sent out this form letter to everyone that he had like an outstanding letter with and he was like I'm tired of corresponding with people that are badmouthing me and so you know you need to sign this contract that says that I do not believe Dave Sim is a you know, misogynist and all this stuff. Um, and if you don't sign this, and then and oh, and it was also like, if you sign it and send it to me, I will post it publicly so that everyone can see who signed the list. And if you refuse to sign this, then I never want to communicate with you ever again. <laughs> it's like again, sort of typically extreme. Yeah. Uh, and I remember getting that and being like, well, I don't know him. You know, like I've corresponded with him a few times. I'm inspired by his work ethic. But, like, I don't feel comfortably, like, publicly saying one thing or another about this guy's personal views, which I have no idea about. So, um, I didn't sign it. But then, according to the rules of that letter, like, he will never write me back. I'm not allowed to send him anything. He will not open it. He'll just throw it out or whatever unless I'm on this list. Um, So, that's kind of a bummer. I would have really liked to have sent him a copy of Basewood. I don't know
0: how strict he is with the list anymore. Okay. Oh, cool. Is he 180 on that? Well... (laughs) I'm not on the list. Okay. And I've interviewed him since then. He said he was making an exception, but it's like, I think, uh, people have stopped caring. Okay,
1: cool. Well, maybe I'll send him a book, uh, because that made me a little sad, but I can also understand, uh, he has sort of, uh, built a spec- <laughs> a very specific, uh, space to inhabit in the comics world. So it's probably pretty weird being in there.
0: Yeah. Um, Now your process or progress, I kind of want to say in a way, it's interesting. You you do like a very calculated method of keeping track of your work and what you're doing with your work. Is that partially from the intensity of basewood of just it being so cumbersome or have you always been kind of really careful at tracking what you're doing?
2: Um, I don't know. Like
1: I, I make a chart. Um, I think that's probably the the craziest thing for a lot of cartoonists. Um, I mean, I always like enjoyed math. You know, I took math all the way through college, and uh, my dad's really into math, and that's sort of something in our family that's sort of enjoyed. Um, and and I feel like that's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of cartoonists. You know, a lot of cartoonists just don't like doing even simple math. (laughs) Um, So when you make a chart, you know, for me at least with my process, I have everything scripted out before I sit down and draw. So when I start an issue, um, you know, like I'm working on an issue of Phase 7, I know that it's 44 pages, um, Mm. including the covers and the intros and stuff. So it's pretty easy for me to make a chart and it's easy for me to say like, oh, I've done, 22 pages, I am 50% done. Um, So for me, it's just really satisfying like charting that out on a graph with time being the x-axis and number of pages being the y-axis. And I I find it helps me, you know, it helps with like self-esteem because often you'll be like, oh, I'm going to get this issue done in two weeks. But um, if you actually chart it out and the path of that line is going up to an eight-week deadline. Um, then when you get to two weeks and you didn't get it done, you start going, oh, I'm a loser, and I suck, and why can't I draw faster, and da-da-da-da-da, and you start beating yourself up. Whereas if you just say to yourself, I'm going to draw this in eight weeks, and you're on track, that feels good, and you hit your deadline, then you're like, yay, I did that, and I now know I can draw you know, this many pages in eight weeks. Um, so I just sort of, that's something I encourage my students to do. Um, It's not for everybody. But um, I just feel like if you're not keeping track of what you're doing, you're just kind of in the dark. Um, So, you know, I I just think there's a lot of situations where an editor or a publisher is saying, like, hey, can you get it to me? And you're like, oh, yeah, I think I can get it to you. But you don't actually know what you're talking about because you haven't been tracking your progress. Um, at the bare minimum, I think cartoonists should flip over a page and write the date on it when they're done with a page. Because mm-hmm. then at the end of the project, you could at least look at your progress and sort of see like, oh, this is how long it took me to draw this.
0: Like Gary Panter with his uh, date stamp. Perfect. Yeah,
1: that's that's another great way to do it.
0: I know um, when I saw your studio space, uh, I was visiting Jason Lutz and he was showing, he would started using your method.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I think um, he was trying to hit a Berlin deadline. So, yeah, every once in a while, it'll rub off on someone and they'll give it a try. I think more often than not, it drives people crazy. uh, (laughs) Well, I I don't know. For me, it it itches a scratch or something or, you know, just kind of keeps me like, oh, okay, I've got this much done. Um, I probably had three or four different little things. There's one on my website, so everyone can see where I am. I have my own chart. I have a little checkbox, so when I finish a page, I have, like, a little ritual where I document that it's done.
0: Now, Basewood, um, comparing it to your other work, it's very different in a way. I mean, it's fantasy uh, right off the bat, so that's that's different from your autobio stuff. Mm-hmm. Um what was it about it that like made it such an intense project you're jumping into was it naivety or is it just kind of something specific with it?
1: Well, I think I made, um, it's sort of a, a two part answer, I guess. Um, one is that I had the idea for basement before I even started phase seven. Um, so I had the idea in 2000, um, while I was at Oberlin, I had this really boring class and I was trying to just draw to stay awake. And so I drew like this character in the woods and his head's bleeding and his shoes missing. And I thought, okay, that's the middle of a story. How do I build around that? Um, and so, and that's why I sort of say that it was like three years of writing because from 2000 to 2001, I was kind of developing the story, developing the characters. Um, I talked with my dad a lot. Um, we would sort of kick ideas around and, and try and come up with the story and um but so i didn't know how to draw like i'm I'm actually making a base with companion volume that's going to come out um this year and it's got like some of my earliest character sketches and they are embarrassingly bad Um, i mean it looks like stuff drawn by an eighth grader you know like the the monster has like some sort of spawn like eyes on his like like lifted straight from todd mcfarland spawn it's like around his eyes yeah And like he has like pecs, the the (laughs) dragon has like pecs. It like doesn't make any sense. Um, But I just didn't know how to draw. So, um, you know, I started doing stuff for the paper and then I started phase seven and I still wasn't ready. I I knew somehow like if I start this, I'm going to fail because I suck at drawing and, you know, I'm just not ready. So I did like four issues of phase seven, which were mostly autobio, And that was me just kind of like trying to flex my own story muscles and get in shape. And then I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. Um, but Well, yeah, they're also, just... they're oh,
0: also very visually different, each issue.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I mean, my autobio stuff is more sort of cathartic. Like I think of comics as a really cheap form of therapy um, where it's like, I'm just trying to get ideas out so it's like heavily narrated and stuff. Um, But I remember Jeff Smith is a huge influence on me. And I remember reading an article, um, an interview with him about Bone where he said there's no captions in Bone. You know, Mm -hmm. it never says, meanwhile, on the other side of the valley or whatever. It just sort of cuts to the other side of the valley. Um, So that was an idea I wanted to explore in Basewood, which I I think makes it feel different. There's a lot of silent passages. You know, you might have five pages where you're just flipping through and it's all silent. Um, so that's different than my blah, 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 blah narrative, um, autobio stuff. You know, then I woke up the next morning and I did this. Um, but, and then the, the other side of that is the, not the writing, but just the drawing is different. Um, and that was just like me making a really simple mistake that then turned into a seven year drawing process. Um, so the, the problem was that I couldn't draw small. Um, and if there's any cartoonists listening to this, and I know there are, uh, if you want a pro tip for me it's learn how to draw small Um, so you know when you draw a character in comics you're simplifying life you know you don't need it to be photorealistic it's probably actually better if it's not Um, so you come up with your sort of little cartoon of a character but drawing small is almost like a, a character of a character you know because when you draw a character small, you don't get to put in all the little fussy details, the buttons on the shirt and you know all the cross hatching and stuff. You have to figure out like a shorthand. you know when Karl Barks draws the money bin, he doesn't draw every single coin he draws some coins in the foreground and then kind of comes up with a short can to show you that there's tiny coins receding into the distance. Um, and I wasn't able to do that. So <laughs> in my sketchbook, I drew a character. I was like, what's the smallest I can draw this? And then I thought, okay, that that feels pretty comfortable. I could, I could stand to draw them this small. And that was probably like four inches tall. <laughs> uh, so then I was like, well, I think I want a four-tier page, so that's 16 inches. And then I probably want some gutters. And then I probably want some margins. Okay, so somewhere in this range. And then I went into the art supply store and I wish I could send a terminator back in time right now to just like kill me before I grab that sheet of paper but there was this pad of paper that was 18 by 24 and I was like yeah I can fit it on here this looks right and so I bought that paper I started drawing basewood at that size um, and then to compound the problems of just drawing really big basewood has this very detailed cross hatching patterns stippling um, so I mean the reason the book took me seven years is mostly that I was spending massive amounts of time rendering texture over large surface areas. And I mean like, you know, take, take a two-foot by two-foot section of, of Bristol board and just stipple it with like tight, close stippling, and imagine how long that would take, and then like do 200 pages of that, and that's kind of what that book was. So that's a huge mistake. Um, and so now when you look at my comics, they're smaller uh, the physical size of the pages, you know, like if you took those 18 by 24 pages and quartered them, so they were nine by 12 or whatever, um, I could have drawn 800 pages instead of 200 pages. Um, so that's kind of what I'm going for now. I draw smaller, less cross etching, less tiny details, drawing simple. I can draw small now. All those sorts of things have helped increase my productivity, which has made me a much happier, saner cartoonist.
0: What is it that uh, Scrooge McDuck says? Work uh, smarter, not harder. There you go. There we go. Um, now, did you do the whole book at those large size pages? Yes.
1: I was very stubborn. And uh, just sort of once it had started, that was a boulder going down the hill, and there was no stopping it. So no stopping. There's 204 pages of comics in the book, and they're all I'm, – I'm standing here right next to them. They're all in these giant binders.
0: Um, one of the things I was thinking about with Basewood is it actually feels, um, well, it's not autobiographical. It's probably one of your more personal books.
1: Yeah. I think, it, uh, if you know me, it actually is pretty auto bio, I think, or like, um, it's kind of a bummer. Um, I don't want to turn people off. It's a, it's a, it's a great dramatic story, but it's kind of a bummer. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't want people to not buy it, but, uh, Yeah, like I said, the book's kind of my 20s, and I think I was dealing with, like, you know, breakups and girlfriend stuff, Um, and so I sort of, like, channeled that into the characters, Um, so it's kind of a downer overall. That's another thing I feel like I really want to change. You know, I I don't think of myself as a downer in person, so I'd rather work on things that are closer to my personality, where it's, like, funny, or (laughs) at least (laughs) Fun to read. Um, you can crack a laugh every once in a while when you're reading it. Um, that's sort of the kind of stuff I want to do more of. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I just don't think like you know, graphic novels just take so much goddamn work. And even if you're drawing in the simplest, smallest possible pages, it's still going to take you years and years and years. So it's impossible not to imbue it with some of your personality and your life and things that are going on. Uh, Just because it takes so much work, you know.
0: Is part of it also kind of a love song to the comics that really affected you profoundly? Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, um, sometimes it like I've I've re looked through it because I had to do a bunch of press checks before the hardbacks came back, and uh, yeah, it was sort of crazy to see some of the influence. Or I just reread Bone for the first time in color um, a couple months ago. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of similar things where like the bones fall into the valley or whatever, you know, and then they're in the valley floor, um, you know, stuff like that that I think was sort of, I had read that stuff around the same time. and was sort of subconsciously buried. Um, or the one that's even more embarrassing is uh, my wife and I a couple months ago watched those Ewok movies from the oh, 80s Oh TV
2: movies.
0: Um, oh,
1: Battle for Endor and uh, Caravan of Courage. And I can't remember which one it is, but I swear to God, one of those things is basically basewood There's like a cave on top of a mountain and there's like a creepy monster in it. And he makes a, uh, he like uses the bones in the monster's cave to make a hang glider. Wicket, the, you know, Ewop, yeah. like jumps out and I was like, watching it and i was like oh my god my book is the battle for endor this is so embarrassing but like i definitely watched that a thousand times when i was a kid so um there's probably a lot of different influences that are kind of bubbling up in different parts
0: a little embarrassing to admit it's okay (laughs) i when i was a kid i loved those so much and i was like oh i can't wait for the next one and then all we were had was like the ewoks cartoon and yeah, That was a big letdown.
1: Well, I feel like the Ewoks get a hard rap. Everyone sort of says, like, oh, it's just George Lucas, you know, wanting to make money on stuffed animals or whatever. I mean, the Ewoks are brutally, like, vicious little bloodthirsty animals, right? Yeah. Everyone, like, thinks of them as comic relief. Like, they're about to fry Chewbacca on a spit and eat him, right? And he's basically an Ewok. Like, yep. he's he's when he's going, he's probably saying, guys, guys, I'm like a giant Ewok, what are you yep. doing? And they're just like, Dook, da, do, da, da, do, da. we're going to eat this guy up, you know? So, <laughs> if, they, if, 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 like, Luke had lost his concentration and couldn't lift up C-3PO, they're, like, eating Han Solo. They're having, like, Han Solo kebabs around the campfire. So, think about that next time you're bad-mouthing the Ewoks, people.
0: <laughs> Are you excited about the next Star Wars movie?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, it's gonna be cool. I I'm easy to please. I know everyone on the in the world hates the prequels, but I loved them. I had a great time seeing them. Um, I'm I'm like a, I don't know. There's something wrong with my brain, Robin. I'm not I'm not Dude, able to decipher stuff.
0: You're not. A, I, I have a pretty tough time with the first one, with the Phantom Menace. But the other two, yeah. I enjoyed. I mean, yeah,
1: I I could literally watch a Star Wars movie if it was like. You know, someone standing with a lightsaber reading the phone book, they could just be like, Antilles, Captain, Antilles, Wedge. And I'd be like, oh, this is so cool. So uh, (laughs) I'm easy to please.
0: Oh, God, that's awesome. Um, Now, you're doing a whole bunch of shows. uh, We were just talking before we started. Uh, You were just in Seattle for Emerald City.
1: Yes, and then next, uh, tomorrow, I leave to go to Mocha in New York. The week after that, I'll be in Portland for Linework Northwest. The week after that, I'll be in Anaheim, California for WonderCon.
0: I'm also doing
1: Cake, SPX, TCAF, all over the place. If there's a show, I'm there trying to get rid of some copies of Basewood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, you published that on uh, Kickstarter. Um, yes. And what was the choice between uh, with, with doing it as Kickstarter?
1: Well, um... I put a lot of time into Basewood, so I had some pretty specific ideas about what I wanted it to be. Um, You know, I've been to Aguilhem twice now, and I feel like once you go to France, um, you realize like how pathetic books are generally in North America. Um, You know, like they're small, they're on crappy paper, um, you know, they're paperbacks or whatever, and you go to France and it's like everything's oversized and hardback and on great paper and you're just like, wow, look at these beautiful books. Um, so as soon as I finished Basewood, it was published in French um, by L'Employe du Mois, which is my Belgian publisher. And uh, they made it. They said, we'll do whatever you want. We will make the book how you want it. And I've always wanted Basewood to be big because I drew those pages so big. Um, so, you know, and I've always hated the mini comics, which were in my eyes too small, so they let me do this big oversized edition and then I think I just got spoiled once I held that in my hands, I was like i'm gonna be damned if this book is printed, you know, paperback at six by nine manga size with whatever um and so <laughs> I shopped it around a little bit, but I had kind of like a list of demands i I honestly feel like I've maybe self published too long where like I'm not good at playing with others or something because um, it, it was sort of like I had a couple publishers that were interested. Um, you know, like fanographic said, hey, what's the deal with Basewood? You're done. Can we take a look at that? And I was like, sure. Here's a copy of the book and my list of demands. <laughs> you know, and it was like, it needs to be oversized and hardback and it needs to be on good paper and I want the cover debossed and it should have a textured and whatever. Um, and they were sort of like, that's a lot of production stuff for an unknown new um, person you know, person and book and stuff. So um, they were kind of on the fence for a long time and then um, eventually decided, you know, they had all this stuff going on and I feel like all publishers are publishing more and more books each year. Um, Mm -hmm. So they were sort of like, oh, we really like the book, but it's just not going to happen. And then I sort of had the similar thing with two or three other publishers. Um, So eventually, I think I just reached my limit where, you know, each time you send someone a book to look at it, it takes them about three or four months to get back to you because they're busy people. Um, so, I mean, I spent probably nine months or something or almost a year just like shopping the book around. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. And, you you know, you get sort of into this depressed state where you're like, Bluh! like, you know, I'm sitting around waiting. No one's giving me approval. Um, and I teach production for years. I taught uh, production at CCS. I know what I'm doing. I know I can make a good book. So eventually I just said screw it, I'm going to do a Kickstarter, and as soon as I made that decision, I was much happier, um, and then I was very fortunate, as were you, sir, congratulations on the success of oh, your Kickstarter.
0: Thank you, um, thank you.
1: We both had a similar thing, where it funded very quickly, and we were able to kind of push beyond to some push goals, and uh, yeah, I was able to do it myself, um, and I should mention uh, Chris Pitzer at Ad House Books was really, really nice. Um, he has a big book, uh, Duncan is like also a large book, which gets into all sorts of messy stuff. Like you can only fit 12 of them in a box and it takes up lots of storage space. Mm -hmm. So he said, Hey, I can't publish another big book, but if you publish it, you know, he kind of said, I know that you'll do a good job. So I'll agree to distribute it for you. So he's helped me get into diamond. So, you know, the books on Amazon or you can get it at all your local comic book stores. Um, so that was like a huge boon for me because that's the one aspect I'd never delved into diamond. Um, so I didn't really know how that stuff works. So thank you, Chris Pitzer. He's a stand-up guy.
0: So you, did you have, like, a specific print run in mind um, when you did your 10,000 goal?
1: I kind of wanted to do 1,000 books, but the printer I was talking to, like, doesn't pick up the phone for fewer than 2,000 books. Mm-hmm. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, and at this point, they're half gone. You know, 500 went out to the Kickstarter backers. And then another thousand have gone out to Diamond Orders and, uh, you know, other various places where I've been able to donate books or sort of send them out. Yeah, press copies, like I sent (laughs) one to you. Thank you again for squeezing me in. I know it's a busy time. Uh, I'm
0: happy to talk. I was going to say you shouldn't have sent it to me because I would have seen you in M-City, but then I ended up not seeing you there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) come on. You're Z. Robin McConnell of Inkstuds. I mean, if anyone should get a book.
0: Oh, whatever. Uh, what, so know. anyways, Change yeah, so, so
2: they're half gone, <laughs>
1: but, um, you know, a thousand books is still a lot. Uh, I got a storage unit, and about five feet by ten feet of it is still filled up with unsold copies of the book. So, um, you know, usually I do, like, four shows in a year, but that's why I'm doing, like, 12 shows this year. I just got to get these books out there. Because um, I feel like there's, like a, like, a stopwatch. Like, when you do a new book, you know, it's like click, 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 and then you have a year. Because if I'm at Emerald City... Comic Con next year, someone's gonna say, "What's new?" And I'll say, "Oh, I got basewood." They'll go, "Yeah, you had that last year, or I saw that at the store and decided it wasn't right for me, or whatever." Then you just sit on your books for the rest of your life. So,
0: so does the Kickstarter, because uh, you doubled your goal. Uh, right. Does that allow you give you some flexibility to be able to do all these shows?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it pays for that. So I, I have a stretch goal. We're going to make a rock opera of basswood. All the songs are written. Um, we're actually starting vocal recording this month. All the tracks are laid down. Um, so I'm, I'm using that money mostly for that, just because that's something I've always wanted to do. But um, no, I, I would say most of my traveling money that I've sort of got for this year is from freelance projects that I've done, like illustration stuff. I just illustrated my first um, chapter book. I got some pretty good money for that, so I'm able to hit the road this year and promote it. Um, so, rock opera. Yes, rock opera. Why? So I this, well, I have this super talented um, friend named Andy Hentz, and he's a musician. He lives in L.A., and uh, there's there's sort of a confluence of things. So, I'm really into Weezer, and they have this abandoned album. Between the Blue Album and uh, Pinkerton, they did this thing called Songs from the black hole and it was a rock opera sort of thing where like each member of the band plays a character and they sing a story um and so there's like little tracks that have leaked out you know rivers cuomo let a few out um with his alone series or there's other things on the internet um so you know like that was a cool idea to me and then this band harry and the potters um, who I really love, these two brothers Joe DeGeorge and Paul DeGeorge, um, sort of sing as though they are Harry Potter in the story and it's kind of like punk rock songs singing from a first person perspective. So it's like a cool way to tell the story of Harry Potter through music. So it's sort of like cramming those two ideas together, like what if each member of Basewood was a member of a band and then they sort of sing the story. Um, and Andy is insanely talented. So he's done all this amazing stuff where like each character has a theme and they can weave those themes together during different songs. And uh, yeah, it's something we've been working on for probably like three or four years because um, I sent this my, this idea. like, what if we jammed these two ideas together and we did a musical bass with? And like that night, he sent me a, like a demo back of like, this could be the first song. Um, and so for years now we've just kind of been kicking it around. And then when the Kickstarter happened, I was like, hey, man, are you ready to like, you know, push this into overdrive? Are you ready to take it seriously? And luckily, he had time in his schedule, so um, yeah, we've been jamming on it pretty hard the last like four months, and we're nearing the finish line. It should be out in June.
0: So, are you going to be singing?
1: Yes, I play the part of the monster.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then uh, my friend Sudara Williams, who lives in Austria, is going to sing the part for the dog. He has kind of a scratchy, squeaky voice, which is perfect. Uh, Andy is going to sing uh, the main character, Ben. My friend Lindsay Sharp is singing Karen. And then our friend Ben Montgomery, who lives in Santa Fe, is going to sing the part of Argus. So he's nice. got a nice soulful voice. But it'll be fun. And that's packaged with that companion volume I was talking about. So, um, you know, if you buy Basswood, then you can get the companion. Volume which will have the album you can listen to, it'll have all the lyrics and then a bunch of kind of like quote unquote DVD extras of concept art and all the different stuff that went into the
0: production of Basewood. Now, um, since uh, being done with Basewood, it's put away <laughs> the books on the shelf.
1: Thank God, never again.
0: <laughs> um, your most, I guess, is your Weezer story. Uh, your, kind of your next multi-part yeah. thing that you've done since then?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I'm kind of on an anti-graphic novel kick right now um, now that Basewood's done. I don't think it's necessarily a healthy track for cartoonists to be pursuing. Um, so I'm finding a lot more joy in work that is smaller in smaller chunks. So even though the Weezer story will end up being probably around 100 pages, um, it's comprised of a lot of smaller stories, so I just kind of can sit down and draw a two-pager and not have to sweat bullets over how it ties into the overarching whatever what the next page turn is and all that kind of stuff um so part one is the blue album it's 10 short stories for each track on the blue album and it's just kind of about how i fell in love with weezer and how they became my favorite band i'm hoping that it's universal so you know I don't know what your favorite band is, but I hope that when you're reading it, you can kind of be like, oh, yeah, this is how I felt about, you know, my favorite band. Um, Part two is about seeing them in concert. It was my first rock concert ever. I got to meet Rivers Cuomo. He signed my guitar. It's probably the happiest moment of my life. Um, And then part three is uh, every show that I've been to since. And eventually I got to work with the band. I did some posters for them um, for their memories tour a couple years ago. So um I don't know dreams come true that's kind of the message I guess it's like you can work with your heroes and um you know if you build up some skill set you can apply that towards things that you love so I don't know I feel pretty good I've gotten to meet most of my heroes and you know I'm married happily married and things are good I get to draw for most of my day so I can't <laughs> complain life is good
0: How do you get connected to do the uh the posters
1: uh, there's a cartoonist named Phelan Cook, and her uncle is Carl Cook, and he is kind of the unofficial fifth member of Weezer, and he's a big comics guy. Uh, oh, okay. So I met her at, like, Heroes Con, where we had met a couple times, but I saw her at Heroes Con. She's like, oh, hey, how's it going? And I was, like, wearing a Weezer hat or a shirt or something. She's like, oh, you're into Weezer? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, my my uh, my uncle works for them. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, your uncle is Carl Cook? And then I was like, she said, you know, oh, you should, you should send him some comics sometime or whatever. And so I sort of hooked up with him, and then he's been super cool and just kind of kept me in mind when they have little things pop up where they might need an illustrator.
0: Wasn't Joe Matt hanging out with Rivers for a while? I don't
1: know. That would be cool.
0: I think he uh, they was. De-
1: they definitely read comics. Um, you know, like, I think Adrian Tomine did a poster for them back in the 90s, and that's not, like, a mistake. Like, there's um, – footage of them in the studio and they're like reading optic nerve and so I think Weezer's down with comics
0: there we go um, now your other story you're working on you mentioned is the the Star Wars thing um, yes
1: so um, that's probably a couple of years off but that's kind of my big uh, epic story of it's kind of it's about girls in Star Wars I'm trying to figure
0: <laughs> all that out <laughs> two opposite ends of a spectrum
1: Yes, exactly. And trying to trying to find happiness in the middle of it all.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Alec, for uh, joining me today. Yeah,
1: thanks so much for having me on, and uh, good luck with your upcoming tour. I know yeah. it's a busy time for you in the planning stages.
0: It's uh, it's getting pretty exciting. I'm uh, I'm sad that we're not gonna cross paths, or we may cross paths. Maybe in not, L.A. Yeah. Maybe in L.A. Um, but I still uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And uh, I really enjoyed Basewood. Uh, Reminder, folks, I've been talking to Alec Longstreth, and his new book is Basewood, available from FinerCon.